dialysis work is not sexy. You really don't hear fellows excited to go to a program heavy with dialysis work. And frankly, you don't hear many IR attendings thrilled to be doing dialysis procedures. Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Darshan Parikh, a fourth-year medical student from Drexel University of College of Medicine in Philadelphia. And I'm Allison Cleard, a fourth-year at Drexel as well. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the host of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Allison and I will discuss dialysis interventions with Dr. Aaron Brandis, an interventional radiologist at Banner MD Anderson Cancer Center in Arizona. The discussion in this episode was really helpful to me during my weight rotation last month, and I was able to understand the complexities of dialysis grafts and fistulas, and how difficult these procedures can be for both interventional radiologists and patients. I definitely agree with that, Allison. Uh, Something that I really enjoyed about this episode was how meaningful these dialysis interventions can be for patients who are dealing with conditions that are lifelong, and how much impact an interventional radiologist can have in influencing these patients' lives. So without further ado, here is this episode. Dr. Brandis, we're very excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Allison and Darshan. It's a pleasure to join you today to discuss dialysis intervention. It's a much maligned area of IR, and hopefully I can put a slightly more positive spin on it. And I'd just like to apologize in advance. If you hear some screaming in the background, it's because Sweden just scored another goal. (laughs) (laughs) It's no problem. So just to give us a little background, how did you decide to become an interventional radiologist? Well, I don't want to bore um, the listeners with rehashing my story from the uh, GI Bleed podcast, because I know everyone has listened to that um, at least four times by now. Oh, no, no. Well, instead, I'll take the time to quickly pitch why interventional radiology is the greatest specialty around. And if I were making the decision again, um, I would make the same one. So, you know, start off with the cliche, they say variety is the spice of life and variety is definitely IR. Um, There really isn't an organ system that IR does not intervene in. And Every every year we have uh, expanding interventions. You know, IR encompasses you know, the well-established service lines of uh, interventional oncology, women's health, including urinary fibroid embolization, um, treatment of arterial diseases, and there are numerous newer procedures that are still evolving, including our role in stroke interventions, prostate artery embolization, and um, even IR endoscopic procedures, which I know you've done a few podcasts on, um, which have been very good. So it's an incredibly exciting and interesting um, specialty. Um, It's an exciting time to be in the specialty. But, you know, with all that um, potential, it's quite daunting. Um, But, you know, as an interventionist, you're often kind of the problem solver of the hospital. Many specialists will consult you to help them out of the jam. You know, you have a toolbox of interventional knowledge and skills, which allows you to tailor interventions to the specific patients, and you'll actually be amazed at what you can do in seemingly unsolvable situations. And the best part is we do it all through a nick in the skin, um, which leads to faster recovery than traditional surgery. And IR is the future, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise, because they're just jealous. That's great to hear. How has your career developed over the years, and is there a specific part of the field that currently interests you? So personally, the um, areas I really enjoyed in fellowship 
um, were around treating peripheral arterial disease and in interventional oncology. Um, at Penn, uh, we, all, we always had a lot of residents, um, medical students, fellows with us on service. Um, and I loved, you know, being able to teach the residents uh, and fellows. Um, and I was lucky enough to find a position at Penn where I could kind of encompass all of what I like to do. Uh, but, you know, then, as they say, life happened. And I found myself relocating last October back to Arizona, where I grew up, and I took a job at Banner and B. Anderson Cancer Center here in Phoenix. And now my practice is predominantly interventional oncology, uh, which I do enjoy. Uh, I've gotten involved with the U of A Medical School to, you know, try to keep spreading the gospel of IR and to teach medical students, you know, how amazing a specialty it is. That's an awesome story for our listeners. Uh, as medical students who hope to join the field, we're lucky to have educators like you leading the field. Um, with that, let's begin our discussion about nephrology and specifically dialysis interventions. Dr. Brandis, what makes you so passionate about dialysis interventions? Coming into fellowship at Penn, I actually knew very little about dialysis intervention. You know, I honestly, I couldn't tell you the difference between a fistula and a graft. But all of that quickly changed uh, due to Scott Teratola being at the helm as the uh, chief of interventional radiology. He's been a leader in the dialysis field for a long time. His dedication to these patients is what really inspired me. You know, dialysis work is not sexy. You don't often hear medical students excited to do IR because of dialysis. You really don't hear fellows excited to go to a program heavy with dialysis work. And frankly, you don't hear many IR attending thrilled to be doing dialysis procedures. Uh, I hope you mean palpably thrilled. I'm just kidding, guys. Sorry for the corny joke. But um, why do you think that is? Uh, there are numerous reasons for this. Um, stereotypically, dialysis patients can be quite difficult, uh, but you have to understand what they go through and kind of how miserable it is being on hemodialysis to get a better glimpse into their life. So they often spend, you know, three days a week sitting in chairs for multi-hour stretches getting these dialysis session. So it's either a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Then if their access isn't functioning correctly, then they have to come to you on a day that they're not getting dialysis and have a procedure done, which essentially ties up another day um, in their life. They also have been under dialyzed or have missed a session altogether. So they're quite often feeling terrible due to the uremia that's going on. So if they aren't smiling and excited to see you, you know, you shouldn't take it personally. You can take solace in the fact that you're literally saving their life because without a functional dialysis access um, or a catheter if required, they they literally would die. So additionally, dialysis cases, particularly B-clots, can be some of the longest, most challenging cases, can leave you exhausted and extremely frustrated. And you know, not to mention the natural course of these um, accesses is that the issue you are currently treating will likely recur and you're going to see the patient again. You know, I was definitely on a first base, a first name basis with many of our dialysis patients. So it sounds like the the life of dialysis patient is definitely not easy, and uh, it seems like you're doing as much as you can to make that a lot easier. And in the meantime, it seems like you've experienced some difficult cases relating to that topic. Uh, so we're excited to hear more about that later. Uh, for now, could you briefly describe what your role is in the care of dialysis patients? Yeah, interventional radiologists play a vital role in the care of um, dialysis patients. Often it begins when we first place a tunnel dialysis catheter at the initiation of dialysis. 
And this allows the vascular surgeon to plan a permanent access for the patient. Once um, a fistula is created, uh, we sometimes are asked to help the fistula mature so it can uh, be used uh, for dialysis. Then we maintain the access throughout its life, performing angioplasty and stenting as needed to keep it functional. If the access thrombosis, we uh, can perform a declot procedure to clear out the clot and reopen the access. And occasionally, we are even asked to embolize a fistula that's no longer needed or it's causing um, issues such as hand ischemia from arterial steel syndrome. So what are the ways in which vascular access can be achieved for hemodialysis? The two main avenues for hemodialysis are through venous catheters or more permanent um, accesses, including arteriovenous fistulas or arteriovenous graft. Are certain routes of access preferred? Yeah, that's a great question. And as an interventionalist who treats dialysis patients, one should be well-versed in the um, what we call KDOKI guidelines. That stands for Kidney Disease Outcomes Quality Initiative. And these guidelines were published back in 2009, um, excuse me, 2006, and were actually um, in the process of being updated with the expected release date any day now of uh, summer 2018. Um, But based on the current guidelines, uh, the recommended type of access is a fistula. So you often hear the phrase fistula first, catheter last. And this arose from the fistula first uh, breakthrough initiative and the reason for this is because fistulas um, are superior to AV grafts and that they have a lower thrombosis rate and actually require fewer reinterventions, thus making them overall more cost-effective. Um, they also have a lower rate of infection uh, when compared to grafts, which in turn have a lower uh, infection rate when compared to catheters. In terms of the preferred types of fistula, um, there's really no randomized control trial comparing the recommended anatomic order of distal to proximal access construction. Um, However, good surgical uh, practice guides that when planning permanent access, the surgeon should also um, always consider the more distal site possible to permit the maximum number of future uh, possibilities for access in the patient. So that means the first fistula is often a radiocephalic fistula, and if that does not mature or eventually fails, then uh, the surgeon can move more proximal up the arm to create new accesses. So we kind of talked about where fistula is placed. How about catheters? When a patient requires a catheter, uh, whether it's to initiate dialysis or for some reason um, they aren't a candidate for permanent access and um, require a catheter for um, long-term dialysis, the preferred site is the right internal jugular vein. And there are numerous reasons for this. Um, the right IJ offers a more direct route to the right atrium when compared to the left IJ. Um, so catheter insertion and maintenance in the right translegular vein is associated with uh, lower risk of complications um, when compared to other potential catheter sites. Um, if you place the catheter in the left internal jugular vein, this potentially puts the left arm's vasculature in jeopardy uh, for a more permanent access on the left side because the catheter has to pass through um, the left brachiocephalic vein. And femoral and translumbar vein placement are associated with a greater risk of infection when compared to internal jugular vein, which is why they are not preferred. Um, and catheters definitely should not be placed in the subclavian vessels on either side due to the risk of stenosis, which can permanently exclude the possibility of placing um, a permanent fistula or graft in that arm. 
Um, if the patient has uh, um, slowly maturing access that's already been created, you should avoid putting the catheter on the same side as that access. So if the patient has a right radiocephalic fistula, which is not maturing, you would choose the left internal jugular vein. Um, however, just remember, fistula first, catheter last. Wow. Okay. So it seems like there's definitely a lot to consider prior to, um, you know, performing an intervention on some of these patients as they'll likely need some of these interventions for the rest of their lives. Um, how do you go about selecting patients for permanent vascular access? So the decision for patients to get uh, permanent hemodialysis access is um, actually usually made by the nephrologist and related um, generally to a patient's uh, GFR. Um, a fistula can take a relatively long time to mature, and thus they ideally should be placed months before the anticipated need to start dialysis. And a mature fistula is defined as having a flow rate of at least 600 milliliters per minute through it, uh, being less than six millimeters below the skin, and having a minimal uh, vein diameter of six millimeters. And this can easily be remembered as the rule of sixes um, for fistulas. If the fistula does not achieve these benchmarks, we can uh, be called on, like I mentioned earlier, to help the fistula mature. And this often involves performing angioplasty at the arterial venous anastomosis or in the outflow veins of the fistula to increase the blood flow through that fistula. Um, in a situation where there are multiple outflow veins, which are, um, in, a, in essence, competing for the fistula's blood flow, we can embolize the non-dominant outflow uh, veins which in turn has the effect of increasing flow through that fistula. Grass, on the other hand, um, take less time to incorporate. Historically, it's been three weeks after a graft has been placed that you can use the graft, but now there are actually grafts on the market which are immediately puncturable and can be used immediately for dialysis. You know, the, the decision between placing a fistula or a graft is usually made um, by the vascular surgeon. Again, fistula is preferable. Uh, however, patients will first undergo either venous mapping with an ultrasound or venography to assess for suitable veins for a fistula. And if they're deemed not a fistula candidate, then they often will receive an AV graft. So you kind of started to mention a little bit of that, but my next question was, um, what is the pre-procedural workup for some of these patients? And are there any specific tests that are required? Um, yeah, it's... Uh, um, very similar to most uh, IR cases in our pre-procedural workup, um, it's important to check routine labs, uh, particularly uh, PTINR. If for some reason you're suspecting a central venous issue, um, such as the patient has arm swelling in the same arm as the fistula, that's usually caused by a central venous stenosis or occlusion on the side um, of the access. So in those cases, the INR should be less than 1.5 due to the risk of venous perforation. Otherwise, we use a cutoff of two um, for the INR for routine dialysis patients. Uh, dialysis patient. You know, the patient should be MPO so they can receive conscious sedation as angioplasty and these accesses can be extremely painful. Um, definitely check uh, if the patient has sleep apnea or uses a CPAP machine because you don't want to have air, airway issues during the sedation. Um, it's always important to review the patient's allergies, particularly if they are allergic to contrast. In most dialysis cases, we can actually use carbon dioxide um, for the imaging if the patient cannot get uh, contrast. 
And then one special situation to be aware of is in the patient who comes in for a declaw procedure, because uh, you have to remember these patients often have missed at least one dialysis session and are at high risk of being significantly hyperkalemic. So if the patient has a potassium greater than five, we'll normally reach out to the patient's nephrologist to discuss whether it's safe to actually proceed with the declot or if the patient should receive a non-tunnel dialysis catheter, undergo dialysis, and then return within the next uh, few days to open the access. It's always better to err on the safe side than risk a cardiac dysrhythmia during the procedure. Yeah, that's definitely understandable. Um, in performing some of these procedures, what are the most common complications that you encounter when working with patients on dialysis? So patients uh, with end-stage renal disease are known to be at increased risk of uh, cardiac mortality compared with um, their age, sex, and race-controlled cohorts without renal disease. Thus, when performing intervention on these patients, increased vigilance during their care uh, for early warning signs of instability is very important, and this requires an experienced nursing staff to know what to look for in these patients. The um, most common complication during the procedure um, with dialysis access is actually causing vascular rupture, uh, which is usually of a vein following an angioplasty for a stenosis. In fact, it's so common that it's hard to really consider it a complication. You know, the big complication occurs if you're not prepared for it or you cannot control it. Um, luckily, all of us who perform large volume of dialysis cases know when these ruptures are likely to occur and usually how to deal with them. Uh, depending on the access, there is a typical location for stenosis causing the problem. So even before a procedure, I already have a general idea of what needs to be done. So for example, a radiocephalic fistula with poor flow likely will have an anastomotic stenosis. The patient has a brachiocephalic fistula and presents with pulsatility or prolonged bleeding. Yeah, they're likely to have a cephalic arch venous stenosis. In a patient with a transposed brachiobacillic fistula with pulsatility or prolonged bleeding, they likely will have a venous swing point stenosis. So before I treat the offending lesion, I already have a plan should rupture occur following angioplasty. And, you know, the options include prolonged balloon tamponade or stent graft placement if necessary. So in my planning for the procedure, it includes making sure I don't lose wire access across the treated lesion. I uh, have the balloon ready to go back again um, for balloon tamponade, knowing what stent grafts I have available and whether I need to change the sheet to accommodate the stent graft. So if you have a plan before the complication um, occurs, the outcome will be much better than if you're flailing uh, following rupture. So earlier you mentioned declot procedures and how they are often the longest and most complicated cases that you perform. What makes them so challenging? It's um, often the uh, declot um, occurs due to a uh, significant fundamental flaw in the access. Um, and uh, if you're performing a declot procedure, uh, the most common complication is causing an arterial embolism, uh, which means that while you're clearing out the thrombus in the fistula graph, a piece of uh, thrombus refluxes past the anastomosis and embolizes down the arm. And this is important to uh, recognize because that can lead to acute hand ischemia if not treated appropriately. Again, because this is fairly common, we know to look for this um, and know how to address it should occur. One technique, um, which I learned from uh, Dr. Teratola, is what's called back bleeding, um, 
which is uh, basically you inflate a balloon up in the artery proximal to the anastomosis. And this has a result of um, causing retrograde flow up the artery from the hand through the dialysis access. And you hope that the retrograde flow actually carries the embolus with it through the access and clears the artery to the hand. Um, if that doesn't work, you can use other devices such as AngioJet or um, uh, the Indigo to suck out uh, the embolus from the artery and reperfuse the hand. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so IR seems to play a large role in treating patients um, with end-stage renal disease and other nephrology patients, but surgeons and nephrologists all do have an equal and vital role in treating these patients long-term. What is the relationship like between IR, vascular surgery, and nephrologists? Yeah, great question. As with most of our interventions, a multidisciplinary approach results in the best management for patients. Um, at 10, we had a monthly dialysis access conference that was run by IR, and our main vascular access surgeons and nephrologists always attended. Um, we will review the last month's dialysis access cases and make decisions regarding the patient's access um, at that meeting, you know, whether it needed to be uh, undergo surgical revision or if we should place a stent in if the patient continues to have a dysfunctional access or if we need to start planning for a different access because the current one likely will not last um, for a long time. You know, these monthly meetings were incredibly educational to everyone who attended and really enhanced the relationships between all the specialties involved. Do you collaborate with other specialties for the continued management of many of these patients? Absolutely. Um, all the vascular surgeons and nephrologists have my cell phone number, and we you know, routinely discuss uh, patient care. The nephrologists are on the front line, uh, seeing these patients during their dialysis session, and are usually the ones to recognize when an access is dysfunctional and send them to us for intervention. You know, it's, it's very key to have um, diligent monitoring of the access to try to get the patient to IR early when it starts to have issues rather than later when it becomes thrombosed and becomes a larger procedure um, to open up. And if I ever had a question about the access, um, whether it's how it's created or I see something that needs, you know, either immediate or short-term surgical intervention, I will, you know, call a vascular surgeon to discuss the plan. And collaboration is uh, very important for providing good care in these patients. Uh, still on the topic of collaboration, uh, it seems like the field of interventional nephrology is growing in popularity as a specialty after a nephrology fellowship. Do you think there's a different approach to interventions when an interventional radiologist versus an interventional nephrologist perform them? Yeah, that's a, um, a, a hot, hot button topic. Um, and, you know, in general, I try not to be too critical of other specialties. I think we do that um, a little too frequently in medicine. Uh, but saying that, in this case, I, I, can't, I can't help myself. And I personally believe that interventional nephrology should not be a specialty. Um, part of the reason it exists is IR's fault, having given up dialysis work, uh, leaving a void for other poorly qualified physicians to fill the gaps. As I've probably alluded to three or four times now, dialysis access cases can be incredibly challenging, especially after multiple re-interventions on the same access. Um, an interventional nephrologist does not have the endovascular skills of an interventional radiologist and is ill-equipped to handle the challenges 
should difficulty arise. You know, they frequently do not appropriately treat patients, whether it's undersizing balloons for angioplasty, placing stents when they are not required, placing stents in poor positions, leading to access failure in the future, or even limiting um, future access possibilities for the patient. Um, which, which you need to remember is that, you know, the access is the patient's lifeline and they deserve the most qualified practitioner to develop, deliver high quality interventions. And that is an interventional radiologist. Well, thank you for your thoughts and your honesty on that topic. Um, moving on though, are there any exciting procedures in the interventional pipeline for dialysis patients that you're looking forward to? I'm glad you asked. Um, there, there's been a lot of interest and percutaneous creation of arterial venous fistulas. And there are several devices currently undergoing clinical trials um, for this. Uh, the, the two that I am most familiar with are, are called the Ellipsis Vascular Access System and the Eberlink System. Um, actually, this year in February, JVIR published a study where they examined the Ellipsis System in 107 patients. Um, where they used ultrasound-guided anastomosis between the proximal radial artery and a perforating vein in the forearm. And the results were promising with 86% of the patients achieving the primary flow um, outcome, which was 500 milliliters per minute of brachial artery, and the um, diameter target, uh, which was four millimeters in the target vein. Um, the way this device works is you use ultrasound to puncture um, from the target vein into the forearm radial artery, and then use a catheter, which uses thermal em energy to anastomose the artery and vein. Um, the other system, the Everlink system, um, works by accessing both the artery and the vein, and then using magnetic catheters to pull the artery and vein together, followed by a short burst of radiofrequency energy, which creates a channel between the two. Um, thus creating a fistula. Um, in fact, just yesterday, the FDA approved these two systems for use in the United States, so the future is now. Um, these systems have the potential to cut out the vascular surgeon um, in select patients, uh, but of course, don't tell the surgeons that. Thank you so much for an awesome discussion and for teaching us about your role in dialysis interventions. Um, as we near the end of our episode, what else is important for students to know regarding interventional radiology and its role in managing dialysis patients? So speaking from a personal experience, dialysis accesses may initially seem quite daunting. You know, I threw out a bunch of words in this podcast and, you know, your listeners might be wondering what's a radiocephalic fistula versus a brachiocephalic versus a transponed specific vein fistula versus an AD graft. And, you know, really once you sit down and spend a few minutes reading uh, and then seeing the anatomy in real life patients, it becomes much easier to understand. Um, then dialysis work really becomes kind of like plumbing. And if I can figure it out, uh, I think anyone can figure it out. Um, I also just want to, again, stress that these can be some of the most uh, cantankerous patients you will interact with, but again, don't take it personally, um, and don't don't let their attitude uh, affect the intervention at all. You know, treat them appropriately and take the time to make sure you completely address the problem that brought the patient in. Um, you have their lives in your hands. 
With the field growing in popularity each year for students, what advice do you have for them, um, for the people who are interested in IR? Well, if you're interested in IR, you're already the smartest medical students out there, so just keep doing what you're doing. Um, but seriously, I'd encourage them to get exposure to as many different IR practice settings as they can. Most likely what they've experienced so far um, in medical school is an academic IR practice, which is associated with the medical school. Um, however, that's actually um, a minority of what IR is these days. Um, I'd, I'd urge them to reach out to a local IR group in the community and ask if someone would be willing to let to let them hang out with uh, with um, them to see that practice. I think they'll find that most of us um, in the private practice world would be excited to have interested medical students join us for you know even an hour, a day, a week, as long as they'd like. Um, to get a feeling of different types of IR practices. Um, I'd also recommend they get involved early in the SIR, uh, join as a medical student. If feasible, attend either the annual SIR meeting. Uh, next year, it's in Austin, which is a great venue. Or they can attend smaller meetings, um, such as ACTIVE, which focuses on venous disease, ICIT, uh, which is more um, arterial vascular disease, WCIO for interventional oncology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, find a course um, or a meeting that they're interested in and definitely attend that. You can network at these meetings, um, which is definitely going to help you in the future. And of course, most importantly, listen to the Sound of IR podcast. That is really great advice. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Brandis. It was fantastic to hear how interventional radiologists are involved in the care of dialysis patients. It was my pleasure. Uh, it's always great to spread, spread the love of IR and hopefully inspire the future generation of interventionalists to be passionate about dialysis access, or at least not dread it too much. That's it for this episode. Please keep an eye out for upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing tips, why 90 and women in IR. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd definitely love to hear from you. If you're a practicing IR who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, where at thesoundofir with underscores in between every word. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time.